0: Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Just a massive thank you before we begin to however you are listening to this. I'm your host, Ben James, and we've got a pretty special episode in store for you. Obviously, it's Wales v Scotland in the Six Nations. This weekend, myself, Matt Southcomer and Simon Thomas all sat down to discuss Wayne Pivak's team selection, which was heavily dictated by injuries, and then a conversation a little later on in the podcast, which I'm very excited to bring you, Jamie Lyle, the fantastic. Jamie Lyle, a rugby commentator and a writer for Rugby Pass and the 15, joined us to talk about what threat a confident Scotland team could bring Pivak's side this Saturday. As I say, there's plenty to get through in this podcast. So sit back, enjoy, and if you haven't already, subscribe and leave us a review.
1: Gents, it's been a bit of a nightmare, hasn't it, in terms of injuries? Well, I hear that um, young Matthew is uh, travelling up to Edinburgh for the game. I would suggest, knowing that he's a bit of a contender, I suggest he takes his boots, <laughs> gets his COVID test sorted, because he would be required, and, you know, centre or back, well, I'm sure he could slot in nicely, because <laughs> this is his carnage, is isn't it? I mean, you work it out, nine members of the original Six Nations squad unavailable for Saturday, and it's only round two. Pivak used the figure, Wayne Pivak today used the figure of if you take everybody, kind of everybody a potential selection inside and outside the squad, I guess he means, you're talking 21 players unavailable. It's just brutal. I mean, it, it reflects the nature, the hugely physically demanding nature of rugby. A lot of people on my social media timelines have been raising questions. Why do Wales get so many injuries? Is it something they do? Well, you know, we don't know exactly what the training regimes are, but there does seem to be a large element of bad luck here and especially for Josh McLeod, and we'll get on to him in a moment, I guess.
0: Absolutely. Let's um let's just have a look at the team then. Matt, what were your initial thoughts? Um I suppose <laughs> it's hard to say there's too many surprises because it's it's literally probably who's ever left in the squad. But yeah, I think you have hit the nail on the head, really. Um, you know, it's, it's a good job that
2: Liam Williams is back uh, from his suspension. You know, you start to when you start to look at the bench, it's it's almost like last man standing, really, isn't it? We, you know, Halaholo had to really come onto the bench, otherwise you're looking at either Lloyd Williams as sort of a makeshift. Uh, cover elsewhere as he's done very successfully in the past of course for Wales or, or Jared Evans um, but looking through this side the forward pack is pretty good I think Navidi is going to be obviously a massive loss um, I thought he was brilliant against Ireland uh, pretty much his old self very physical and you know ultimately um, is going to be unavailable now for uh, for, you know, we're we told it's a neck injury. Um, they're hopeful that he'll be around for the England game and fingers crossed on that because obviously he's had a lot of time out recently. Um, but his absence is going to be felt. I think it's a bit of a blessing really that uh, Jamie Ritchie, um, obviously not, perhaps not the right turn of phrase here, but for Wales it's it's fortunate that Jamie Ritchie isn't able to make the start line Um because obviously that Scottish back row is an absolute nuisance from from six to eight. Um, You know, as it is, Richie's not going to be playing, so perhaps Navidi's absence won't be felt as much. But, you know, I, I feel like his loss is is really significant uh, in all of this. Because uh, like I said, I thought he played really, really well uh, against Ireland and was pretty much his old self. You know, and, and look at the centres. You know, like you said, there's not really anything else they could have done. But, you know, your first, second and third choice centres are... Are unavailable so you know it's a big opportunity for Owen walking because I felt like you know nobody was really talking about him before the tournament when it came to selections and things like that um, so you know it's good to see him get a shout and hopefully he takes his chance
1: The thing with me on uh, on Navidi I mean your, your fingers are firmly crossed with him we don't know exactly what happened but any kind of Bang in the neck or head area, um, which I guess he picked up against Ireland is a concern because you know, he, he was out for four months with concussion. So the biggest thing with him, you know, Wayne Pavaka said he's hopeful of him being available for the England game. So that, that's on it's in the 27th or fortnight away. So that's encouraging. So fingers firmly crossed for Josh. Um, but the really brutal one is, is Josh McLeod. And the story, when you hear the detail, is, is hard to listen to, really. With Navidi kind of sidelined, McLeod was named in the team in front of his peers, in front of the rest of the squad on Wednesday. And then half an hour later, he he ruptures his Achilles tendon in training. And, and that's that's a serious one. That's a six-month job. It's just such cruel luck for him. You know, on the back of what happened in the autumn, where if you recall, he was named in the squad, then got injured on the eve of joining up, did his hamstring, missed the entire campaign, got back in, his chance was here, brought in, I guess, really, to add that extra jackling turnover ability over the ball, which is an area where Wales struggled against Scotland in the autumn, and then he suffers the injury. You know, Wales are fortunate to have, you know, a quality player in Aaron Wainwright to come in, but when you think about it, that number six jersey is a bit cursed at the moment. In the space of four days, you've lost four potential starters in that position in Dan Lydiate, sorry, three in Lydiot, um then Navidi, and now McLeod. You add that to the likes of Moriarty being out unavailable, Shingler being out unavailable, you know, prime six candidates, who really is uh, it really is a cursed jersey and fingers crossed that you know that Aaron Wainwright can come through unscathed on the weekend, but it's not just six, it's across the board. And um, put it this way. It'd be a good one to win up in Scotland now. Absolutely. Um
0: we'll get a little bit onto sort of what Wainwright is going to offer to the back row in, in, in just a second. But first, there's a question coming in the comments, and I've clicked on the wrong comment, but I did enjoy <laughs> that one, from uh, Anne Bear very much. Just a couple of emojis. But this is the, the comment I was looking for. It's uh, from Lewis Griffiths. Do you think we are overtraining the players? Now, this is a question that Wayne Pivac was oh, yeah. asked quite a lot, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the first
2: thing we've got to say on this is, quite frankly, we've got no idea. Um, you know, we can only speculate. Uh, I personally have had a bit of access to the team in the past in, in terms of watching training sessions before World Cups and things like that. So there's a bit of insight, but we don't see the week in, week out. Um, you know, I've done a lot of reading about this and I've spoken to a lot of people um, because it was an issue again in Japan uh, in 2019. Um, so we, I've done a bit of bit of digging around and stuff, you know, when you, when you hear Wayne Pivak say things like, you know, your ACL can can just go, um, you know, it's one of those things that can happen. You know, there's a school of thought out there, and there are theories around the fact that these are not always accidents. Um, you look at someone like Dan Lyddiot, for example, somebody who's been out of the international game for a very long time. Now, I've been told by people very close to this sort of thing and, and very knowledgeable in this area that players coming into an environment who have been out of it for quite a while, a high risk, players coming back from injuries, a high risk. Um, now I'm not saying that there aren't things that can be done to those players training schedules to mitigate this, but it, it's not uncommon for players to be coming back into an environment, you know, a really highly intense environment, something that Dan Lillard hasn't been in for two years and his ACL goes within 10 minutes of the, of the opening whistle. You know, these things are not always, um, just the innocuous incidents that just happened. There are reasons for them. Now we can't, I cannot sit here and say to you specifically that happened because Wales have been over training players. It would be irresponsible to say that. And I've got absolutely no evidence. And I've seen them in, in their practice, the Welsh sort of backroom staff, they monitor players so carefully in training. And sometimes, you know, when you look at the collision injuries and you look at shoulders going, things like that. Not a lot can be done about those. It's a collision sport, but when somebody's ligaments go, when there's no one around them, that's when you need to start wondering why things are happening like this. So I, I don't think those things can just be written off as total sort of anomalies. And oh well, these things happen. There are there are reasons for this, but I can't I can't sit here, um, you know, it, and be comfortable saying that I think Wales are overtraining players because I don't
1: think that's the case. If you look at Thomas Williams as well, Matt. He hadn't played international rugby for close on a year. Comes in, off the ball, or running, you know, running, no one around him, his hamstring goes. Now, is that because he hasn't played international rugby for a year? Is it because hamstrings happen? These are finely tuned athletes, aren't they? It, it, you just don't know. I mean, legit on his own, no one near him. His ACL goes, just landed awkwardly. You wonder with um, McLeod, Achilles tendon. You know how does that happen? It's, uh, it's. Part of me thinks you know it, it's just the way rugby is, and it's it's brutal luck. Um, but I guess the more it happens, the more focus there will be, and the more questioning on perhaps the methods that are employed and what's going on. But you know we're not we're not medical scientists, are we? No,
2: far from it, quite quite frankly. But the one thing I would say as well on this is that. Uh, you know, speaking again to Pete, this is coming from people who are far more knowledgeable than myself, but there's a sweet spot that these coaches have got to hit with these players. You have to push players to get them ready for the test match environment you can't you can't go all week wrapping players in cotton wool and then send them out on a saturday and hope things go well because that's also a recipe for disaster so you know these players can't just be sort of mollycoddled through the week and then sent out on a saturday they they have to be pushed hard in training because the the physical demands of a test match to require that to happen in the week before games. so and and you know you look at you can't legislate for the contact injuries, right? But, you know, when muscles go and ligaments go, those are the ones where you have to start thinking to
1: yourself, maybe there are reasons for that. And you've got George North as well, overcomes yep. his scratch dying. Now he's picked up a, a foot injury in training, by the look of it. It does make you think that the training can all at times be as, um, you know, as damaging in terms of potential injuries as the game, I suppose, as Matt says, because you're pushed hard in training, aren't you? Absolutely. Um, I just want to touch
0: quickly back on the selection of Aaron Wainwright because I think back row balance was something that Wales didn't seem to get right in the autumn. And then it felt in the opening sort of match, uh, whether it was Lydia starting the game or Navidi coming on, they'd stumbled upon it because you either had a big hitter in Dan Lydia or a jackal threat and also a tackling threat in Josh Navidi. And now it speaks volumes that maybe uh, McLeod, who, who was uncapped, was considered ahead of Aaron Wainwright?
1: Well, I mean, it's, part, it's, it's a reflection as well, isn't it? Uh, and uh, if you think back, Pivak made it pretty clear that he now saw Wainwright as an eight, not as a six. He, he was using the comparison with Moriarty when when, when Ross was available. Uh, you know, Ross is very much the physical kind of six, whereas um, Wainwright is more kind of dynamic and athletic player, and someone who can really make an impact bursting off the back of, of the scrum. So you can you can certainly see that he probably wasn't in the frame, in the, in the six-pack in order. But if you look at it, as I say, you lost Lydia, you lost Lavidi, you lost McLeod, who can play both sides, and as I say, does offer you that jackal option. So there is, there is no one else available because, you know, I think it was probably not ideal to be asking both of them in a hollow, hollow, kind of straight on the bench after a day. But we've seen; it wouldn't have been ideal to us, and to start either of them, you know. So it was, it was inevitable, really, that Aaron, who's been training with the squad for a couple of weeks, would go there. Look, he knows the international position of six really well. He had an excellent World Cup, a good year, twenty nineteen, and what he will offer you, as I say, is that athleticism, is that ability, the long striding ability to sort of make ground, get around the park, and what he will also offer, which could be very valuable at the moment is a real line-out option. And given the way the line-out has gone, that's probably not not, that's not the worst thing to have coming into the side. He's a talented player, but clearly, in terms of what Wales have been looking for, a six, they were looking, when you look at Ligid and Navidi, very much physical options. And then considering what happened against Scotland in the autumn where Wales are blown away at the breakdown, you can also see why they were looking at the Josh McLeod option. Josh is physical in the contact area as well. And turnover King in the Pro 14 last year is his real strength. And they probably would have been seeing that as something they have to counter. But you, the international sport is all about dealing with adversity, isn't it? And it's whoever you've got available, and Wainwright's the man who's available. He's a quality international player, and he will adapt to it. He's kind of another of these players who sort of, as he's been growing up on the international stage, so he's kind of been asked to change his role a bit. And now I, I, I really like him as a number eight. I think he's you know potentially the long-term replacement, long-term replacement to Farah Tau there because I used to like Pierre Spice when he played for the Springboks. He's that kind of guy, kind of explode off the back of the scrum, you know, really athletic, really mobile, great work rate as well. you will bring that, but I think Aaron himself, and I've seen him say this in the past, he would, he would admit that over the ball is probably not his greatest strength. So Wales have got to adapt, utilise him well in the line-out, utilise him in terms of his tackle count. He'll work hard there. Um, but I do think they're going to have to find a way of adjusting at the breakdown. Now, as you rightly said, the fact that Jamie Ritchie is unavailable, um, that will take away a bit of the um, the jackling presence of the Scots because he he had a field day, didn't he, with Parker Scarlett, mm-hmm. and after, along, did, with, did. Uh, along with Hamish Watson and Fraser Brown. Now, Brown has gone as well. Um, Hamish Watson is still there. Um, and there's a very it's a top quality player coming in a Blade Thompson, we all know about from the Scarlets. And he will relish because uh, he's a real liner exponent, he'll relish taking on the suspect Welsh line out, but it does reduce their um, threat over the ball as well. So from what we were expecting with Hamish Watson, Jamie Ritchie, and perhaps you know Navidi and Tipperick or McLeod and Tipperick. Now, all of a sudden, you, you've probably got less real jackal specialists on the field. Um, and if you go back to last uh, Sunday, I thought Wills' is probably main pr- an exponent of the, of the jackal breakdown was Wyn Jones. He's turning into a, a real you – know, obviously, like, you know, he's, he's got a guy in Gethin Jenkins there who wasn't bad over the ball, as Alou said. And Wyn Jones, as well, has been a really strong scrimmaging presence, good carrying. He's a presence over the ball. So I think he's going to – I would imagine – He's going to be given a licence to attack the breakdowns. But Wales, in the same way as they need to resolve the line-out, they need to resolve the breakdown issues. And clearly losing Legit from the contact area and McLeod and Navedia's and over-the-ball options does change the complexion of the game, So, which the two teams will adapt best to the losses, really.
0: Let's move on then um, to the back line, because I see we're getting some comments uh about midfield as well. Obviously, we mentioned George North is out. Owen oh, Watkin, Nick Tompkins uh, come into the centre, and that means that a certain Willis Halaholo's on the bench, set to make his debut. You know, there's a few people in the comments saying that Jamie Roberts uh, should have got the nod. Um, one, do we agree with that? And, and two, what can we expect? Because um, I, I, for one, am excited to see Halaholo in a Welsh jersey.
2: Yeah, I think. Um- you know, I'll let Simon speak more to, to sort of Halaholo, his performances of late, and things like that. Uh, but I, I was interested to see Wayne Pivak come out quite strongly in the press conference, really, um, and explain why he went with uh, Halaholo over Roberts. Um, he says he looks at stats uh, and obviously performances, and, and they have evidence, I guess, that Halaholo is actually better um, at getting through the game line than Jamie Roberts. Um, Roberts obviously has that power game. There's not a lot of you know, it's not very discreet. We all know what's what's coming when, when Jamie gets on the ball and he's very good at what he does um, and has been in recent weeks. Uh, but I think uh, Pivak looked to that sort of footwork of Halaholo and getting through the first tackle, beating defenders in, in very tight spaces, uh, the offloading game. Uh, and also pointed to the fact that Wales have been a bit wasteful when they've when they've broken through that line and and found the sort of soft edges in the fifteen metre channel, uh, and he thinks that Halaholo is actually very good in that part of his game. Um, so th- there's a lot of there's a, probably a bit of a feeling that he's a, he's something a bit different um, and brings that kind of spark that is is perhaps missing. You know, we, Wales lacked a bit of creativity really against Ireland. They did enough to get the job done, but weren't particularly creative across that midfield. Um, so I, I think there's just a feeling that that Halaholo offers something a little bit different. And you know, don't don't assume that he doesn't get success on the game line because it just because there aren't always massive collisions is what I would say to that. With,
0: know, did um, you did you see the stats back. Simon doing the rounds on Twitter? I think I've seen the stats a couple of times doing the rounds on Twitter, and it does. Point out that Halaholo on form does has been probably better statistically than Robertson in, in a lot of facets of the game, including parts
1: of things like tackles
0: made and, and and defensively, which
1: might surprise people. They're very different centres. Let's say that first of all, um, with Jamie, Jamie will make a dent. He will drive you back in the tackle, and he will generally cross the game line. He's been doing it for ten plus years more than that, you know, and he's been doing it well for the Dragons recently, especially taking that short ball off nine, he'll make a dent, he'll get you on the front foot, right? Now, you could argue against Scotland, with the likes of Watson, perhaps they thought Richie as well, is trucking it up in the midfield what you want to do, offering a target for those Scottish Jackals over the ball, or do you want someone like Hollow, who tends to, rather than go and drive you back, he will look to beat you with his feet, and then once he's done that, he's got the pace and explosiveness to go away. And you then take in the sevens and the back row out of the option a little bit because you go to different areas of the field. And you support coming up at pace. So I think they would see Halaholo. that The phrase that Pivak used, he referred to his footwork in the collisions. So, almost makes you think footwork out of the collisions, not taking the collisions, beating people with the footwork, and also his offloading ability. So, he's gone for a player there who, rather than driving into the defense and driving the defense backward, is someone who's going to go around contact and go into space. So, it's a different approach. But of course, we're talking the benchman here. Initially, you've got the situation with Tompkins and, and Owen Watkin. Now, that's a different, it's a new combination. It's a different combination. Um, I'm pleased for Owen Watkin, actually, to get the chance, because I think he's been playing well for the Ospreys of late since they kind of focused on him playing at 13 more. He's never really let Wales down. Now, he's not the most spectacular, you know, or, You know, he's he's not a markering kind of character in the centre, you know, for the older generation. Or, um, but what he is... He is a, a very sort of solid player who I also think with the Ospreys of late has shown in a slightly wider channel that he does have that ability to cut through defences. So I hope he goes. Well, Nick, Nick Tompkins for me is he's a real enigma. I mean, you would love to see him producing the kind of display he did on occasions the start of last year. Um, the worry with him, I guess, has been that he does occasionally have that tendency to jump out of the line. And you, you do worry slightly with the defence, and of course, that area has changed again in the Scottish because we were all talking about Cameron Redpath playing at twelve. Now you've got a very kind of different kind of twelve. I think it's James Lang, isn't it? The old um, um, RCG player up in North Wales, um, very much more of a second distributor at twelve and a kicking game as well. So there's a lot of the dynamics have change, but it's intriguing balance that um, Watkins and Tompkin, Watkins and Tompkins combination. Um, but I think you will see Hallaholo get game time. And if it is in the balance when he comes on, well, there's not many people you want more than the hot stepper to try and make a break because he has got incredible feats. And ironically enough, the reason he missed out first time with Wills, because let's recall, Pivak picked him in his very first squad. The reason he missed out was he did his knee against Leicester doing a double step. You know, It's part of his makeup, is in his gene pool. And as Matt and I know, he's got an incredible backstory, which I've written about this week. And, uh, yeah, it is, uh, it's become the tale of, one of the tales of the week.
0: Absolutely. He, he just sort of feels like the sort of player that Wayne Pivak wants in his squad to, to, to sort of move in the direction uh, of his philosophy. Um, I guess the final part of these uh, Facebook Lives, as they always are, is to put your neck on the line and um, offer some predictions Jens, how do we uh, see this one going? Um,
2: well, I'll go first, then. I, 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 one of the positives I think Welsh fans can can take into this match is I think it's going to be very difficult for Scotland to to get themselves back up to the emotional levels that they reached um, a week ago to, to get that win over England. Um you know, it's very difficult. It's one of the hardest things really at this level is to back up your performances week in, week out. Uh, and we haven't seen a, a great deal of evidence that Scotland can do that in, in recent years. I don't think we be wrong. They're a very dangerous side. You know, if Finn Russell plays well, Scotland generally do well. Uh, and Wayne Pivak, uh, you know, will be very much aware of that. And I'm sure they'll come up with some sort of game plan to try and stop him. Um, but, you know, again, the breakdown it was a major concern uh, at Parker Scarletts uh, back in October. And I think Wales are going to have to make sure that they tidy that part of the game up. Going forward, you know, with all the players that they've lost, ugh, it's going to be tough. I think it is really going to be tough. But, you know, I backed Wales last week uh, and they produced the goods. So I see no reason to change from that. Liam Williams coming back, big bonus as well for Wales. And Louis rees it's always got a try in him. Uh, so I, I, think, I think Wales can win. It's going to be tough. Uh, but I don't think it's 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 beyond the realms of possibility, should we say?
1: The um, the twenty fifteen World Cup shows that you, Wales can still succeed while injury ravaged. Um, but I I can't help get away from the fact that the lineup remains such an issue. The breakdown is a concern, I guess, especially with the loss of of the players we've talked about from the back row. Um, So taking those into consideration, taking how well Scotland played, considering the ravages Wales have had and the injuries, it's hard to look beyond a Scottish victory, I would say, by seven or eight points.
0: There we go. Um, Personally, I don't see it being high scoring. I think it's two good defences, two decent packs, but maybe two back lines that aren't all that clinical. I think Scotland showed that they haven't got too much finishing prowess at Twickenham. So I think it's going to be very close. I think it's going to be potentially settled by less than two or three points. Um,
2: I I, I don't want to hear a low scoring prediction from you, Ben. I got to drive seven and a half hours tomorrow, pack up seven thermals to sit in probably about minus 15 to watch this game on Saturday. Now I know, obviously, I'm very privileged. I know a lot of people would be... uh, would give their left arm to do the same but I don't want to hear a low scoring prediction from you <laughs>
0: just, just call it how I see it um, I hope <laughs> you uh, bring your snowplough with you yeah absolutely
2: I'm Sam Warburton and you're listening to the Welsh Rugby Podcast
0: Well, Jamie, it's um, it's absolutely great to have you on the podcast. Someone as talented as you at both rugby writing and, and commentary um, a, a proper dual threat. <laughs> and, and and have you have you just about recovered from the weekend?
3: Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you very much. I'm extremely flattered for that um, highly exaggerated introduction. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I I have recovered my voice, um, my vocal cords, thankfully, from from commentary and also screaming the. Screaming the train station that I watched that uh, that magnificent triumph in down. Um, I've just about recovered and just as well because I've got another couple of games this weekend um, and I can't be can't be sounding too too hoarse. Um, but no, it was just the most the most incredible win. Um, I I've never seen Scotland dominate England at Twickenham like that. I've not really seen any team dominate England at Twickenham like that. And the most surreal thing wasn't the fact that from a selfish point of view I was sitting in a a train station in the East Midlands, West Midlands, wherever Nuneaton is in the Midlands. That's where I watched the, the Hamish-Watson turnover and the, the shin into the, the empty stand. Um, that wasn't the most surreal part of it for me. The most surreal part of it for me was normally you're absolutely cacking yourself in games like that. You're, you're terrified. And of course you're on edge because it's the Calcutta Cup and the magnitude of Scotland winning down there for the first time in nearly 40 years. But it never really felt, especially in the second half, that England were going to score. And you're, quite, you're kind of sitting, watching it, dreading them, dreading the kind of the phases in the 22, dreading the inevitable period of pressure where they're bludgeoning you, they're pummeling you, they're they're getting inexorably closer to the to your trialing, thinking, oh God, it's oh it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. And you think of how many times Scotland have been have been sickened. Um, cough cough, 2010 Millennium Stadium, for instance. Um, <laughs> that's one for the Welsh, the Welsh listeners um, in games like that, but. It never came. England England fired so few shots, and it was such a although it was a five point win, it was an, a ridiculously comfortable win, um, and the stats bear that out. So to answer your question, a long winded way, yes, I have recovered, and, but I'm still sort of um, overwhelmed by the the level of performance that Scotland put in, and how how poor, disjointed, and and quite timid England were. It was it was really quite shocking.
0: Because I was I was live blogging it for us, and mm. you find yourself almost debating logic, don't you, in that second half? Because you just think, well, England haven't shown anything, but they, they're surely at some point they're going to get a chance, and they're going to take that chance. You know, it reminded me of um, Elliot Daly scoring in the corner against us, yeah,
3: yeah. In, in oh, 2020,
0: you just, you just know that the, the sucker punch is going to come, even yeah. though what you're watching suggests there's no chance of that happening. But that I guess that's also the most pleasing thing is Scotland were just so dominant. Hmm.
3: Yeah. I mean, the the stats bear that out as well. As I said, I think I think England had something like thirty percent possession, give give or take a few percent. Uh, they didn't make a single line break, and I think I think Ross Petty put the. I can't remember exactly what the the numbers are on that, but I think Ross Petty, the the rugby stats guru on Twitter. Um, who I'd certainly recommend you follow if you don't already uh, put on the, the number of years it's been since, since England failed to make a line break in the Test match and I think it's I think it was 2013 something like that it might actually have been that, that uh, thump and you boys gave them in the, the, the title decider in 2013 mm-hmm. um, which I watched on a sheep farm in Wales actually but that's a story for another day um, and I, I was that, that, the numbers when you look at the, the stat sheet that you get after these matches it's just insane no line breaks from an England side at Twickenham um, and and there's, there's all this chat around, oh, you know, the, the Saracens guys are rusty and they haven't played enough and the decision-making was off, they weren't battle-ready. But I think that's, that's you, you can argue the merits of that. I don't think that's a fair excuse for A, that level of performance and B, a, a nation such as England. When you look at the, the vast, lavish resources that England have in terms of player pool, I mean, the depth they've got, the guys who aren't picked. I mean, I think Marcus Smith would probably have about 100 caps if he was uh, if he was Scottish by now, uh, along there with Finn Russell. Um, if you look at some of the guys that they haven't picked, they're obviously not picking Sam Simmons or Joe Simmons. Guys of that that level of quality. Um, I mean, there's there's plenty more. Jack, Jack Willis not quite making it into the fuel squad this time mm-hmm. around. Um, the guys that they, they don't pick for whatever reason, Ben Spencer at Bath who's, who's playing better than he was in 2019 when he got called up to sit on the bench in the World Cup final. Um it, it's quite quite confusing at times. I mean, look, I understand Eddie Jones' rationale behind it and being loyal to the guys who are generally ruthless and unflappable and, and outstanding on the world stage and have won so much for him. But I don't think it's a I don't think it's a viable excuse for him to say Ach, they were rusty, they were rusty. Because you can't, you can't, if, if they're rusty, why pick them? Why why back them to go into a, a Calcutta Cup match against a Scotland team that's going to be incredibly motivated? You know, all the chat from England is, oh, this is your cup final, this is your cup final, this is this is the game you always get up for, and then you you go and lose the other four and call it a successful Six Nations. Um, but I think if they're rusty, why, why throw them into that arena with, you know, 23 ravenous Scottish guys, um, one of whom obviously plays for Saracens as well, and Sean Maitland, who, who had a very good game. Uh, I, I don't really get that narrative at all. Um, but you're right, that there was never really any sense of impending doom, which as a Scottish fan, you're just braced for. In in any Test match, it really doesn't matter if we're playing Madagascar under-20s or England at Twickenham or the All Blacks at Eden Park. You, you know at some point there's going to be some uh, some nervous moments and and they just didn't really come, especially in that second half. You're, you're waiting for England to just sweep forward or for for a mistake to be made or a knock on or a scrum or a penalty or something. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're defending five metres out and it's all very squeaky bum time. But it just didn't happen.
0: If anything, you probably just ruined the sort of missed chances because it could have been so much more, couldn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was a point I made in a, a fairly um, flowery and overly emotional column that I wrote for a Rugby Pass shortly after that. Um, it, it could have been more, and it should have been more. It should have been more than a five-point win. And sitting here in the cold light of day saying that, that Scotland should have won by more than their um, five-point margin at Twickenham. I mean, you're you're in quite cuckoo land. You're waiting for the men in white coats to come and take you away. And, you know, I think if I didn't have such a receding hairline, you'd be frantically looking for a lobotomy scar with that kind of pattern. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was. It was was so comfortable. And you look at the chances they missed the red zone possession that they had that they didn't convert into a try. The the missed kicks I think Russell obviously missed the conversion, missed the penalty, and I think he might have missed two penalties. I, I can't remember because I was in such a heady state of delirium at that point. Um Hog, Hog missed,
0: did Hogg miss a penalty as well from memory? Yeah I think of you know, yeah. I didn't yeah.
3: get so you you left a few points out there. I mean I always find it hard to, to say oh well you, a conversion is different because the game restarts in the same way regardless of whether you kick it or not. But obviously if you miss a penalty it's either live play or it's a twenty two generally speaking. Yeah. Um, so that then changes the flow of the game. So you can't say, oh, well, if, if we'd kicked that, then we would have won by another three points because you've no idea what how the, the flow of the game would have changed thereafter. But, um, yeah, there, there were certainly chances to score tries that they didn't take. There were chances to uh, kick points that they left out there. And, obviously, there was, there was the drop goal instant at the end, um, which almost had me uh, combusting in Uneaton train station, to be quite honest, because, you can argue the merits of whether it was the right or the wrong decision, but when the pass is too high and you're checking onto your left foot, Finn, just any, just it, just just, don't, just pass it, pass it to a big player. you know, give it to Gary Graham and let let him soak up a few tackles and then worry about the drop goal. Um, that much like Gareth Davis at the end of uh, of the Welsh game with that little grubber. I'm sure the the emotions were exactly the same for Welsh fans watching it as they were for for me and for Scottish fans. Um, but you're right. I mean, the margin of victory could have been more. And even as I say that now, for I think the fourth time in this long-winded and fairly vacuous answer I'm giving you, uh, it's it's crazy to conceive.
0: Yeah, I think the the drop goal probably uh, it's, it's it maybe summed up the boom and bust nature of, of Finn Russell at times, didn't it? <laughs> in in 18 minutes. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean,
3: look, Finn Russell is probably. I mean, from an attacking point of view. I don't think there's a better fly-half in the Northern Hemisphere right now. I really don't. Um, you might say, oh, well, in time I get fit, would would give him a run for his money on that. Short-kicking game, probably the best in the world, to be honest. Um, but I mean, there's obviously plenty of good fly-halves in, in the Southern Hemisphere, and particularly in New Zealand, who would have someone to say about the, the title of best 10 in the world. Um, but I think, and you know, you'd know, you be better placed to comment on this than, than I, having probably covered Wales under Gatlin for a long time and interviewed the man and spoken to the man and, and soaked up more of his vibes and what he what he wants and expects from his players and his his blueprint for the game and, and specifically his his tennis playmaker. But I do think that Finn Russell will still have quite a bit of work to do to convince Warren Gatlin that he's a, a test starter. I think he'll tour. I don't think there's any doubt that he'll tour because of his brilliance and because of I mean, if you were if you were ranking the top fly halves in in Britain and Ireland, you are eligible to go. Russell's in that top three all day long, all day long. Yeah. Um, but I think while the flakiness and the uh, the kind of sometimes quite harebrained uh, errors that he made in his younger days, I and mean, I remember the the game in Cardiff in 2018 uh, when Scottish fans were quite confident we went down there with the chest puffed out, going, "Oh, this is it. We've had the great autumn." Thumped the Wallabies, uh, who had the red card, came very, very close to beating New Zealand for the first time. Had a great autumn, had a great um, summer where we lost to Fiji, but we beat Australia in Australia. And then people were thinking, oh, this is it. We're flying there. The style of rugby we're playing is breathtaking. We'll go down there and run these big Welsh bruisers around. They're finished and all the rest of it. And they got absolutely humiliated. Um, And Finn Russell didn't have his best game and missed a couple of touches. and Finn Russell being the character he is, he was kind of chuckling after them because he just shrugs off mistakes. as well, well, just try it again. But he, I think he's eradicated a lot of that from his game in France. Um, and I think his, his game has, has improved and uh, flourished and probably diversified a bit in his time there. But you're right, he still has those elements where you go, oh, geez, don't, no, don't do that. Um, but that's what makes Finn Russell, Finn Russell. He's such an instinctive um, player. And, and in saying that, I'm probably doing them a disservice because... Yes, he plays on the edge. Yes, there's there's a degree of sporting, rugby, athletic instinct in there. But there's also a hell of a lot of hard work. I mean, I think people mistake Finn for, for being quite carefree and oh, he just does what he wants and just plays as he sees it. And there's a, there's an element of that, of course. But the, the work that he puts in um, with the likes of Mike Prendergast and uh, Laurent Travert at, at Racing 92 to come up with plays, to come up with uh, methods to exploit an opposition team and the way that he drives that Rassing side... I mean, he speaks fluent French and, and was speaking it fairly soon after he got over there, um, which maybe isn't a diligence or, ai don't know, something you would associate with Finn Russell if he didn't know the man or know what he's like. Um, and yes, he can be a bit you know, impish and, and, and laugh off a mistake or chuckle a bit or seem to be a bit like shrug of the shoulders. Ah, well... I missed touch in a Six Nations match. It's all right. It's only a game of rugby sort of thing. But he works incredibly hard and he's incredibly driven and he loves playing for his country. Um, but I, I do think he's got a little bit more to do to convince Warren Gatlin that in a test match against South Africa, you can hang your hat on him to deliver. And not so much deliver as not do anything <laughs> uh, that's going to be, not detrimental, but that's going to give, give cause your team a few problems. Um such as you know, a, a cross kick on your own five-meter line, or an offload that isn't on, or you know, the the drop low attempt. That you can argue whether it was the right call or not. It, it probably was. Um, if he if he got it, it's a great decision. But once the pass isn't great and you've got two or three Englishmen breathing down your neck, it's probably not the right call to still try and force it and squeeze it through on your weaker foot. Um, so I think I think he's got a little bit to do in that regard to to make himself the the premier number 10 in Warren Gatlin's eyes assuming that tour does in fact go ahead in some form
0: I yes, suppose that's the big the big if isn't it I think I agree with you I think he will tour because I think I don't think Gatlin likes having too many Lissol Mercurial players in his team but he no. likes to have them around like you know he, yeah. he basically when he came into Wales it was basically 14 men and Shane with, with, <laughs> with, with the idea like if the, if the game plan's not working just give it a Shane and yeah. he'll find the way out of it I think I think it was Ben Smith who did a piece for you sort of talking about yeah, how,
1: been,
0: yeah. you're talking about you know how Gatland's basically going to take on South Africa. It's going to be basically that semi-final the Wales played. It's going to be kicking the ball up in the air and just the aerial game. So I don't see Finn Russell being a starter, but I think if if he does want someone on the bench, maybe you can change the game. I think they'll yeah. look at him. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I
3: think I think Farrell's are starting ten all day long. Uh, as far as Warren Gatland's concerned, yeah, um, I don't, I don't see. I, I would, it's, I mean, it's probably a toss up between. Bigger and Sexton as to as to who goes. I think Russell will tour. Um, I think I think Bigger will probably edge it on the basis that Sexton's getting on a bit, he gets injured a lot. Um, but what's I mean we're veering well of course here but I think what Sexton gives you culturally is is significant in terms of experience is, is huge. He really drives a team and he's probably quite a similar player to to Dan Bigger now in terms of how they how they see the game, how they run a game. Um, I may be doing either one of the there. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't get to see them every single week. But what I've seen of them in international action, <laughs> that, that's how I see it. Um, and Russell's obviously a, a very, very different option to Farrell, Sexton, Bigger, to, to just about anybody you, you put him up against in terms of um, tens that are eligible to tour. And I think, I mean, you, for me, you can't you can't leave a guy that good out of a Lions tour, especially when you don't have masses of options and how many, how many players, how many playmakers does, does Warren Gatland have who can, <clears throat> pardon me, can do what Finn Russell does, can change a game like Finn Russell can? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's any back in in Britain and Ireland who could have done what Finn Russell did at Twickenham two years ago, who could have grabbed that game by the scruff and and driven Scotland uh, into a position where all of a sudden they, they could have won a game from you know 31-7 down at half time. Um, I'm not sure there's there's too many guys who've got that skill set and that that ability to to back your skills in the white hot heat of of test match rugby so I agree I think think he'll tour but I I, I don't think he'll start I think Farrell Farrell will be the starting 10 barring injury or a a really spectacular loss of form
0: Yeah um, I suppose that's the other thing is you know (laughs) Think back four years ago, and you know the excuses being peddled out by by Gatland to to, to the lack of Scottish players was the the inability to to win away from home. Yep. In, <laughs> you, you kicked off the Six Nations with with as big an away win as you you can possibly get, and and the amount of players now Scottish players who are putting their hands up for, for the Lion selection they, they were before Saturday, to be honest. But you know, just people, yeah. you know, Johnny Gray, Hamish, Hamish Watson is. Yeah just a ridiculous player you, you hope that Stuart Hogg gets the, the rub of the green on what will definitely be his third tour and then you know Rory Sutherland Duane van der there, Moor there's so many players at the minute who are just playing oh, so
3: I mean it's it's a tough one because you, you can make a, a strong case for a lot of those players uh, for, certainly for, for Hamish Watson for, for Russell for, for Hogg who obviously went for Maitland for Seymour um, possibly Effect uh, for guys like Hugh Jones or Alex Dunbar, um, and for for Scotland seekers as well, guys like Fraser Brown and Stuart McAnally. Um, pardon me. I think I think it's a really interesting one because I still think those players that you mentioned there, while they are undoubtedly strong contenders, and some if not all will will certainly tour, I still think they've got a bit of work to do. I mean, it's it's one big away win in okay, we, we, Scotland won in Wales. Um, and possibly the worst game of international rugby <laughs> I've ever seen I, I commented on that and um, well it was hugely enjoyable from a Scottish point of view so it's a, an absolute pig of a game but Scotland gutsed it out found a way to win did it did it the, the, the ugly way if you like um, defended, scrapped took their chance um, and kind of suffocated a, a very error strewn and, and disparate Wales team into submission um, the Wales team didn't really know like it looked like what it was trying to do Um, I think there's still quite a long way to go for those players because if you look at and again I made this point in a a piece for Rugby Pass a couple of years ago but if you look at the the selection calls Warren Gatlin's got to make, um, you take the back row, so open side flankers for instance, you've got Watson who's been outstanding for Scotland for a long time but he's played for Edinburgh, he's playing for Scotland these are not teams that habitually win lots and lots of trophies um, these are not teams Edinburgh more recently under Cockerell have but they're not teams that habitually get into knockout phases of yeah. big competitions like the World Cup like uh, the Champions Cup like the Pro 14 until very recently and what happened when Edinburgh got there uh, this season they completely defecated the bed against Ulster from a, a very very commanding position gave up two or three tries in the only minutes against Bordeaux-Begla in the, in the quarter-final of the Challenge Cup um, and left with a with defeat when they, they could very well have won that game if they had um, delivered a more comprehensive 80-minute performance. So you've got Watson, elsewhere in the open South flanker department, you've got Tipperick, who's led his country, who's a Grand Slam winner, multiple Six Nations titles, Lions Tours in the bag. Gatlin knows him, Gatlin trusts him, incredible rugby player. You've then got Tom Curry, who's a World Cup finalist, Six Nations champion, Autumn Nations Cup champion. Um, playing for one of the best teams in England who were in the playoffs last year but for COVID um, and delivering week in, week out at the international level. You've then got guys like Jack Willis coming on the scene. Yep. You've got you know some of the Irish guys that will push very strongly like van der Flier. Again, won titles with Leinster. You've got champions there and Scotland don't really have many champions because they haven't won enough games at club level or at international level. So I still think the credit in the bank that these guys, these established guys have Plus, when I, mean, I say established, I don't mean older, I just mean that they've been at the top level more consistently than Scotland have, like the Tom Curry. These guys have got a massive amount of credit in the bank. Plus, they're still performing well. I mean, Tom Curry wasn't at his best at the weekend and Ian Watson had him on toast to be quite honest um, at the breakdown. But he wasn't poor uh, and Tipperick was was tremendous. I know he missed one tackle and um, he slipped and uh, Henshaw got through and made the line break for the Ireland try. But otherwise, I mean, he, I think he, if you look at his goal difference he made a try saving tackle in the second half <laughs> uh, on ring Rose, I think it was so he's made amends for that and he's put in 29 tackles God knows how many were dominant won a couple of outrageous turnovers you know I, I think it will still be quite hard for the Scotland guys to to push in of course they're in a much better position than they were four years ago because they've got more evidence they've got more uh, more consistent performances more big results in the back you know beating France beating Wales away, beating England away and um, but also, they're going to have to back that up. It's no good winning at Twickenham. And then everyone oh, hey, Fagerson's a line. Sutherland's a line, George Turner's a line's Bolter, Johnny Gray's a line. Watson and Richie are a line. Matt, you know, uh, Matt Fagerson could sneak in, Ali Price could sneak in, Finn Russell's got to start, Cam Redpath could be a Bolter, Van Der Merber could be a Bolter, Hogg's got to start, Maitland could still, speak. you know, you could go through the entire 15 because they all played so well at the weekend um, and make a compelling case for, for plenty of them. Um, but it's going to be... Difficult, I think, because the credit in the back the other guys have, the CVs the other guys have got, and it's not like they're all in bad form either. You know, Tom Curry could still have an outstanding Six Nations. Uh, Tipperary could have an outstanding Six Nations. Scotland, for the good of um, for the good of their own campaign, but also for the good of their uh, credentials to go on the Lions tour on an individual level, need to back that up. They need to put Wales away at the weekend. They need to be beating Ireland and Italy at home. And at the very least, giving France a, you know, a game of it in in Paris. Not anybody, even after the week, not anybody expects Scotland to go over there and, and and turn France over, even without a crowd. But um, I would certainly expect it to be close, um, and I would expect yeah. Scotland to be to be well in the game in the last quarter. Um, but I think they have to be ambitious now. I mean, coming into this, that the, the generally sort of pass mark for a, a Scotland Six Nations is three wins. You know, that, that's the that's generally a. How you, you know you've done all right there. That's that's a solid Six Nations. Um, and when you look at this year, England and France are generally the, the two hardest games for Scotland, and they're away from home. So that means you're you're normally looking at Italy at home, Ireland at home, Wales at home. Um, and I think those Scotland really need to be winning those those three games. Um, ba- based on current form, based on the way the teams are tracking and the performance they're putting at the weekend, it's, it's no good. We've had so many false dawns and so much inconsistency. Over, I mean, I'm 27, so in the years I've been watching Scotland, the, the number of false dons I've seen um, is, is remarkable. The, the sheer volume of Here, "Oh, that's it! We finally cracked it!" oh shit! No, we haven't. We've just got beaten by Italy. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times that that's happened. Not specifically with Italy, but just with with um, huge uh, variances in performances and even within games. Thinking of Twickenham two years ago, um, so. There needs to be a level of consistency maintained. There needs to be more than one victory. Because that, that on its own, I'm sure it's made Warren gattle think, Hey, some of these guys that was on the fence about, I can't trust them. They can't they can oh, go yeah. and do a job away from home against a powerhouse team. They, they can do it. But I need to see more. I need to see them do it for a whole campaign. Because Alliance Lions Alliance series isn't isn't one game, you know, it's whatever it is, eight or nine. Um and you've got to back up week after the week. So that's the, that's the big challenge for Scotland now.
0: And you obviously mentioned the, the victory over Wales. In the autumn, that was the first away win in Wales in, what was it, 18? 18, 18 yeah, years? Yeah, So now hosting them at Murrayfield this weekend. I, I think I put this to to, to Stuart Hogg and, and Gregor Townsend at the Six Nations launch. They didn't didn't seem thrilled with it, but I, I did question whether they <laughs> had the favourites tag now. Um, and now that you've in beaten England, England at them. For the, you know, for the first time since Maggie Thatcher was in office, I think <laughs> I think you definitely do.
3: Yeah, I'm still not sure. You know, I'm still I'm still not sure. <laughs> that. No, like um,
0: because, like classic Gatlund Wales trying to uh, bat away the favourite tag, you know. Yeah, it? I mean,
3: it's it's a hard one to call. I mean, you look at that Wales team. I think I think as I was saying to you off air before we we started recording, look at the Wales team on paper. And if you go through it one to fifteen. it's a bloody good team there's I mean off the top of my head there's probably going to be what five, six Lions in that team and Scotland will have maybe two uh, and none of them who've played in a test match Um, and you've got five Lions who've started in one if not two series Um, you might bring back a guy of Jamie Roberts calibre depending obviously we're recording this, there and being any changes to the the Welsh squad um, at the time we're doing this but strongly rumoured that Jamie Roberts is, is going to get a shout. And that's, again, that's a huge amount of IP, form, muscle, intelligence, experience coming into the lineup. Um You know, you've, you've got a lot of champions in that team, a lot of guys who've, who've won stuff, a lot of guys who have, have conquered everybody in the Six Nations before as recently as, what, well, 2019, eh? So, yep. you know, you look at that on paper and you go, well, actually, Scotland may have slightly better recent form. And it is only slightly better, you know. Winning, winning one big away game, great. It's, it's tremendous, but it is one game. Um, you you got to remember Scotland were were soundly beaten in Ireland uh, as recently as as November time. In fact, it was early December time. Uh, soundly beaten by by France at home um, in a game they didn't really fire many shots in. Um, they they had a lot of familiar deficiencies against Ireland around errors, decision making, discipline. Um, just frustrating, shooting themselves in the foot moment. So, I don't think anybody will be going into this feeling massively confident that, that you know, oh, hey, Scotland are, are resounding favourites for for this game. When you look at the quality of the opposition that they're they're up against, um, and you know, it, it wouldn't overly surprise me if Wales come up the road and and, and get a win um, with the quality they've got, the knifes they've got. Um, I just think it's all on it's all on what happens up front because I don't think there's you know, barring, barring maybe Russell, I don't think there's a huge amount between the back lines. Um, and I think the battle will be won and lost at, at the breakdown. Because that is going to be, assuming, let's say, Navidi comes in for for Lydia, who's very sadly not going to be, by it looks to be playing, playing much more um, in the coming months uh, with the, the scope of his injury. If Navidi comes in, you've got Navidi and Tipperick in there Overball, Ken Owens is good overball, Falate is good overball, and um, even Alan Wynne Jones is pretty decent <laughs> overball for a man of his age and his his physical dimensions. So that breakdown battle is going to be huge, and I think that that will just be so so pivotal in deciding who wins this game because both backlines can, can hurt the other one uh, with the firepower they've got. You know, you've got Van der Merva, you've got Reese Sammet, you've got North, you've got Redpath, you've got Russell. Um, you've got, I mean, I, I don't know, is Josh Adams available for this game or is he, is he still? Uh, like, he's, he, this is yes, yeah, suspended for this one. Yeah. Suspended for this one. Okay, so you, you don't have Josh Adams, but you've still got a lot of firepower in that backline. Um, yeah, and yeah. even more so if you bring in whether it's Nick Tompkins or or Jamie Roberts. I mean, these guys, I think Nick Tompkins beat more defenders than anybody else in the Six Nations last year uh, yep. from memory. So you've got a lot of, a lot of ammunition in both backlines. Um, and I think there's a great deal between them there and I think that that breakdown battle is going to be massive I'm also excited to see how the set piece goes there'll be a lot of pressure on on the Welsh line-out uh, Scotland's line-out was, was very good everybody, everybody a lot of people were a little bit anxious about how Turner would go in the line-out because he's, he's an incredible explosive dynamic hooker um, his, his work in open field is, is terrific he's like he's like Dane Coles you know he's he bumps people he's, he's a huge huge tackler I mean, he, he knocked Gregory Aldry about six feet backwards in the, the France game in the autumn um, but his, his throwing has been a little suspect in the past but you know while there were a couple of dodgy moments Scotland didn't lose a the line or they won 15 out 15 of 15 at the weekend um, and obviously it's, it's well documented that's been an area that Wales have struggled with uh, since the autumn really um, and that, that game in fact that Scotland beat Wales in um, not depending on Ryan Elias but he, he was the hooker Um was Alan Wynne-Jones' record appearance so he was still in there still a very good pack Um I'm trying to remember who else was there I think Corey Hill played Jake Ball might I do Jake Ball played but it was still a very capable yeah. pack um, and the lineup didn't go well at all and Scotland had the, the beating of them and that'll be a key battleground and one of the more fascinating ones I think when you add, add the kind of forwards um, blends together will be at the scrum because I thought Wynne-Jones was terrific at the weekend absolutely terrific not just in the scrum but in open field and I love his backstory of going to going to Clandovry and earning and his stripes there, you know, playing against these forty odd year old, you know, absolute narrow old bruisers who you've got a forty-five percent body fat, but they're just all old man strength and they know all the tricks of the trade. That's a great nursery for a a, a prop to learn how to scrum. Um and I think him him against Fagerson um will, will be Titanic at the weekend in the scrum. Um Rory Sutherland, outstanding scrum as well up against Thomas Francis, assuming it's the same set of props at the weekend who, who had a, a terrific game in terms of tackles made I think he made 19 or something ridiculous like that which for a, a tight head prop is is magnificent um, so I think the scrum the line out the breakdown that, that'll that decide for this game's won and lost yeah. to me.
0: that's that's the thing isn't it you, you saw on the weekend you know tests are decided by such fine margins I don't think I never really think that any, any of the top tier test teams are ever really as far away as you think they are in terms of you know Wales lost a lot of games last year but yeah the results don't always reflect where where they truly are. And I think I'd agree with you. I think both. I think Wales have now sort of stumbled upon a similar defence to what they had under Gatland.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think that island game. and People aren't talking about the island game, I'm probably because Ireland were down to fourteen men. But it was it was a similar sort of numbers to the twenty fifteen game, which was oh, it was insane.
3: Yeah. Which was
0: which was heralded as like this defensive masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose because it's fourteen men and Ireland largely played, you know, off nine. It's not as yeah. impressive. But I thought they were there, and obviously Scotland's defence under Steve Tandy. Looks really good.
3: It's Uh, a great narrative that, especially for this fixture. Um, You know, Steve Tandy, I I, I didn't know much about him. I'd interviewed him as a sort of trackside reporter and commentator when his Ospreys teams were up in Glasgow. But just, you know, the very kind of quick four or five questions pre-match and then up the road and it's all about the game. So um, I didn't know a huge amount about him. I didn't know what his defensive systems were like I didn't know what he was like as a man or a coach um, he hasn't done a lot of media either um, the SRU are often they're often quite uh, cage them, not the fairest word but they they don't often put the some of the new coaches up so you know, I, I would love to do a piece with Steve Tandy with Peter De Villiers as well with the, who's, who's made a huge difference to the, the Scotland scrum along with Rory Sutherland um, getting fit again um, but we haven't really heard too much from him aside from the, the odds and a early in the week presser here and there um, in terms of assistant coaches. So I'd, I'd love to find out a little bit more about what he's doing. Certainly it seems that the, the system that Scotland had under Matt Taylor um, has, has changed a lot. Um, so I think beforehand what they did was everybody, they, they, had, they had a call. And I might be talking total nonsense here. I haven't spoken to some of the players. This is my understanding of it is at certain points they would all tackle low or all tackle high um, they would they would all try and do you know choke tackle or hold the ball up and get them all or they would all try and chop low, chop low um, and it could be a, maybe a little bit confusing I'm not too sure or, or not as effective and I think like Tandy will get a lot of applause and rightly so because whatever he's done is worth a treat but I think you got to credit Gregor Townsend as well because there were a lot of people in Scotland who would have been not particularly dismayed some would have been quite happy to have seen Townsend lose his job after the World Cup in Japan. Um because Scotland Scotland got that wrong, badly wrong, on, on a number of levels. They got just eviscerated by Ireland. They tried to beat Japan at their own game and Japan are better than anybody at that, that fastest rugby in the world. So there's been this huge sea change in how Scotland play. And I think Townsend deserves huge credit for recognising that the way he had Scotland playing. The way that he wanted Scotland to play, and, and probably without having spoken to him about this, the way that he feels rugby ought to be played in an expansive, high-tempo, offloading, uh, heads-up style. Um, and I think his, his, the greatest example of that was the 2018 Calcutta Cup game with Finn Russell's pass and Hugh John. And the way Scotland played with dynamic, aggressive, um, fairly light and athletic loose forwards in terms of Barclay Watson and Wilson, the way that they battered England at the breakdown, the, the, the explosiveness, the, the offloading, excuse me, the strike plays, the, the big runnings they had from from Jones and from Barnby from Maitland, and guys like that, was that was probably peak Townsend in terms of how Scotland wanted to play in those days. But it's not how you win test matches now, unfortunately. It's, it's very, very rare you see teams like that. You, you can talk about France, but France combined that with a huge physical edge and huge power. Um, and uh, a newfound love for defending thanks to Sean Edwards and, and Fabian Gautier. Um but I think Townsend deserves a lot of praise for recognising look, the way I want to play and the way I see rugby isn't working right now and if you look at the trends in the game that's not how you win test matches Sam Orban wrote a great column on this on this recently when people were saying the nation Nations Cup was boring boring rugby wins your test matches a lot of time great defence wins your test matches kicking well kicking to contest, kicking for territory wins your test matches um, backdoor offloads quite often don't Uh, as as awesome as they are and as much as we all love to see them. So Townsend's had to recognise that and he's put a huge effort into addressing the the wrongs or the deficiencies in Scotland's game plan. So before, like Matt Taylor, the the previous defence coach, was a really close confidant at times. They were good mates. They coached together at at Glasgow for years, at Scotland for years and years. And I think from, from reading the tea leaves of that, he was a bit pissed off, Matt Taylor, that, Jesus, I look like shit because we're conceding try after try because of the style that you're playing, because we're playing this open rugby, as soon as we lose the ball, it's turnover ban, we're, we're done, we're, we're getting scored against, and we're losing lots of points, and we're missing tackles, because guys are in crap positions to make tackles. Um, and I think Townsend's had to recognise that, and change that, and think he deserves a, a good bit of praise for that. He's hired a new defence coach, a new scrum coach, um, and clearly, while Steve Tandy um, deserves the bulk of the, the plaudits. clearly Scotland are investing more time in their defence and training as well. So it's logical to assume that that would then uh, be reflected in what's happening on the pitch. So, yeah, Steve Tandy's done a fabulous, fabulous job. And I think we're, we're very lucky to have him in Scotland. Um, uh, I don't know if it's fair to say Wales missed a trick in not appointing him because obviously when when has got the job, he's going to bring his own guys with him rather than, obviously, Byron Hayward's left in fairly um, mysterious circumstances in the middle of the, the autumn. But it wasn't as if he was going to whoosh his... His, his sort of mate and his close coach to go and bring Steve Tandy in from the Lortas. Um But I think I think the way that Scotland play is so different now to what it was in 2019. And I think Tandy obviously is a big part of that. But I think Townsend, Townsend's partner sometimes gets overlooked as well because um, people were quite keen to, to have a bit of a kick at him after Japan, understandably.
0: It's interesting you mentioned Sam Warburton there because I always find it, I don't know if I find it worrying that basically the rugby calls upon a, an open side flanker to explain why there's so much kicking in international rugby every like three months I feel like I feel like there should be more voices left to explain that than just Sam Warburton
3: but no, you're, you're, yeah I, I get that I think there's there's a lot of, a lot of very good pundits out there and a lot of guys who could be very good pundits but aren't, aren't in the media for whatever reason yeah. um, Sam for me like I, I, I wouldn't say I, I know him particularly well but I've commentated with him twice and uh we were due to commentate again on that scarlet's too long match for for bt so we were sat in the i think it was the i think we were sat in the scott quennell lounge not west i have sat in the scott quennell lounge with scott quennell once before that was that was interesting um for wales georgia that game uh, we're, we're in the scott quennell lounge or the carlsberg lounge or the phil bennett lounge i can't remember one, one of the great luminaries of um of west rugby we were sat in his lounge and uh we found out the game was off obviously about half an hour before kickoff. so I've spoken to Sam quite a few times I've worked with him a lot and I think he's just absolutely incredible as a pundit he's brilliant Um, and he brings so much that you wouldn't I mean obviously players know the game inside out now regardless of position but you wouldn't necessarily expect as you say in Oprosay Flanker to have such an insight on, on kicking or on you know, overall tactics. You might expect him to do you a piece on the breakdown or something, but Sam Sam is incredibly knowledgeable, and in my experience, just just a lovely bloke, just like such yeah. a nice guy. And I'm always impressed when I hear him speak or read his his columns, which I, I doubt have been edited much um, by by ghost writers. Um, See, so for, for me, he's he's one of the best in the business in terms of terms of punditry yeah
0: and annoyingly now he's also got the the fact that he's had a, a brief spell in the wales coaching camp so he can he can speak with authority on <laughs> from being within the camp but it's oh he's, yeah i mean he did a podcast with us before the world cup and uh, i think the podcast went up to about 5th in the iTunes chart and it's it's never got anywhere near that since <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> Um, yeah
3: Sam will do that I'm
0: sure oh yeah Uh, but it's interesting you talk about Gregor Townsend there and sort of the changes he's made because I've looked at him a couple of times last year and thought I wonder if or when Wayne Pivak will consider that I'm not Mm. sure he will because I I think the union brought him in with the the idea of playing more attractive rugby and and when he's talked about the attack he's talked about well you know rugby comes in cycles they'll change the rules almost like he's waiting for the game to turn to him rather than Mm. I think Gregor sort of Recognise that maybe he's got to adjust to, to to the game itself.
3: Yeah, you're probably right there. Um, I don't think he had much of a choice, to be honest. Because if he if he tried to continue doing what he was doing in 2019, I mean, 2019 overall was was terrible. The Six Nations was was brutal. I think Scotland beat Italy at home comfortably, playing that style of rugby, which is you know, with the greatest of respect to Italy, I, I really really root for them every year and want them to do well. And I've, I've interviewed a, a number of their. You know, leading players in terms of Paledri and Stain and you you can tell. I think I think they're getting there. I think, and then you you obviously they take a point, 40 point doing off probably the eventual champions um, in France in the opening round. And you're like, oh Christ! But I watched them quite a bit in the autumn and against Scotland, especially. A lot of great players, a lot of really exciting young players coming through there in the backs and the forwards, which has not always been the case for Italy. Um, and they've got a great young ten there in Garbisi who can yeah and be going going and be the linchpin of that team for a long time. But in 2019 they were they were nowhere, um, and Scotland beat them, got the draw at Twickenham, and then that was it really. I mean, they d- didn't really a couple of cl- fairly close calls against Ireland or Wales. Yeah, a good,
0: really good, really good second yeah. half against us, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, but they just couldn't score. I mean, yeah. they just couldn't score, and that, that style of rugby just didn't didn't win the matches, and it, it wasn't working. I don't think Townsend had any choice but to change it. I and mean, they didn't have to rip it up completely, but I think what we need to do now uh, in Scotland is find a, a balance between the two, because clearly they they have the players to to score from anywhere. You have Finn Russell, Stuart Hogg in your team. You chuck in Cam Redpath, chuck in if any number of. Sam Johnson, Mark Bennett, Matt Scott, Hugh Jones, um, guys like uh, Van Der Mervey, Darcy Graham, Kinghorn, Maitland on the wing. These are guys that are, are phenomenal international players when it comes to the attacking side of the game. So clearly there's there's the cattle there to do it. But I think first and foremost, they had to sort the, the defensive stuff out um, and make Scotland harder to beat, make them grittier, make them gnarlier, make them more rugged and physically um, because that was a problem you used to be able to just rough up Scotland um, for for quite a while and Ireland did it, Wales did it England have done it Um, I mean South Africa to a lesser extent did it in the the autumn in 2018 Um, just out out physical Scotland if you like which is a a horrible term that gets used now and I've just been guilty of using it Um, but I think Townsend had to to address that and, and he's done that very very well I must say um, with the help of his new coaches, with the help of a, a slight change in selection, some players coming in. Obviously, guys like Richie and Watson just get better and better, and they're they're exactly the sort of competitors you need to to be able to to go toe to toe teams physically on in the international stage. Rory Sutherland had had a horrific injury; he was wheelchair bound a, a number of years ago, and it took him ages to get to get back and have a sustained period where he's really fit. Uh, he's lost a lot of weight. He benches about two forty, um, which is. Uh, disgusting, quite frankly, but he's, he's an immensely strong player and he's great in uh, both sides of a, of a props game, the set piece and uh, the kind of puggy and open prairie, kind of Reese carry sort of style of the game. Um, so I think he's had the cattle to do that but there now needs to be just a little move back. We've, we've sort of gone in Scotland from being incredible to watch but also infuriating and quite easy to play against if you kept it tight and battered Scotland up front to no, actually, you can't, You know, unless you are a real, real like South Africa or France with a bunch of heavies, you can't really bully Scotland now. You can't get after them at the set piece. You can't really do them over at the breakdown by just having a couple of big Jacqueline lumps in there. And you can't just bash them back with, you know, Billy Vunapola's and such. But now Scotland need to score more tries again. They need to strike that balance between being really hard to beat and gritty and rugged and being uh, full of Alan and attacking Spark and Verve But losing a lot of tries, and if they can get somewhere in between the two of them, somewhere in the middle, um, you know what a what a great team they will be.
0: Absolutely. Um, I guess the final question then is, how how do you see Saturday going?
3: Oh mate, I knew (laughs) Um, that. It's honestly, I was thinking about this last night um, and the last couple of days, when I I knew I was going to come on and do this, and I knew this was obviously probably going to be the last question to predict what's going to (laughs) happen. I honestly think it'll be incredibly tight. Mm-hmm. I don't see much in this at all. I think, as I said before, the back lines are very evenly matched. I think it'll hinge entirely on who gets the upper hand at the breakdown. And I think that is a mouth-watering or an intoxicating clash, especially at seven between Watson and Tipperick. I put a kind of cheeky post out um, about oh, there's your line seven with a, a full of Eamish Watson and um, more, more tongue-in-cheek than than that I legitimately think or expect he should be the starting line's um, Test 7. Uh, and obviously it was swiftly hijacked by a, a bunch of Welsh fans going, oh, that's not Justin Tipperick! that's not Justin Tipperick. <laughs> Um And yeah, I think uh, the Scottish fans replying to were probably quite smug when Tipperick missed the tackle on Henshaw at half-time, who were probably less than smug by full-time when they saw Tipperick's performance, tackle count, turnovers, carries, metres made, etc. Uh, that, that is just the most um, riveting thing uh, head to heads, and I know it's not as simple as in us Watson versus Tipperary because everybody jackals, the whole team has to go in the yeah. on again. But that that for me is where it'll be decided. Um, I think Scotland the I'm being brutally honest. I think, I think Scotland the legend narrowly, um, but I think I think like the the Ireland game, I think it'll be very very tight and um, very close to call but I think Scotland by, by a score would be my, my prediction.
0: Yeah, what Watson's got a knack against Wales. He? Was it was it 2017 he came off the bench and like broke mm. a ridiculous yeah, I mean, tackles off the bench? Uh,
3: so it was 2019 when he did that. 2017 2019. started. That started, was the year yeah. Scotland beat Ireland and Wales. So 2019 he came off the bench and went on a couple of ridiculous, he'd, he'd been injured for a long time and he went on that a couple of ridiculous charges um, which I think Scotland still couldn't convert yeah. into tries. Yeah. Um, which was highly frustrating until Darcy Graham scored. But yeah, 2017, he, he, he bossed that Welsh that back That was role. it. And I think, I think, I can't remember who was in it, but I think all three of those, of the Welsh back row, went on the tour to New Zealand. And obviously yeah. Watson didn't. And that, that was a slow one, I think, for for quite a lot of Scottish fans. And that, that kind of added grist to the middle of the whole, oh, hey, Catlin's got an agenda against Scotland, which is, is bollocks. It's total, total bollocks. Um, It's just that, I think, as, as I said before, you, you look at the track records of these players the Welsh guys are champions the Welsh guys are lions the Welsh guys are players that he knows will deliver for him on the grandest stage the Scottish guys are boys who have good games here and there in 2017 anyway less so now by a long way but in 2017 it was oh, you can have a, a bit of a shooting star game here but then you're rubbish the next week you're, you're, you're brilliant one week then you're you're a ghost the next so who am I going to take am I going to take the guy who's won trophies or am I going to take the guy who, who had a really good game against the guy who won trophies but then was rubbish the next week and I think that's the call Gatlin's made, especially when at the time Scotland couldn't couldn't win away for love nor money unless it was Italy. And even then it was a bit of a struggle. So, um, yeah, I, I think Watson Watson does like a game against Wales, you're right. Um, but I think him, him against Tipperick is just, I, I don't think it gets so much better than that in international rugby. I mean, Watson against Curry was was brilliant um, from a neutral point of view as well. And Watson against Tipperick with their, their styles of play um, are not a million miles apart. Their ability over ball, phenomenal. Their explosiveness on the carry, phenomenal. Watson's less likely to do a chip and chase as Tipperick is. <laughs> so apart from that, there ain't a lot between them. Um apart from sort of body shape where Tipperick's kind of long and and lean um and quite languid in his running and Watson's sort of shorter and squatter and you know, runs like he's getting out of a helicopter sort of thing. as I've described I've heard it described before. Um so yeah I just think that that's such a pivotal battle um, and I, I can't wait to see how it goes I think it'll be Titanic
0: It's just nice to have a Grand Slam decider in a second weekend isn't it?
3: Absolutely mate I mean it's it's pretty much a slam dunk whoever gets this never mind the French <laughs> uh, piece of cake from here on out
0: Yeah plain sailing after this weekend uh, well Jamie it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast mate
3: and No thanks for having me on Ben appreciate it
0: Hopefully you um, enjoyed the weekend but not, not as much as last weekend
3: I think I think we'll be all right. I think we'll, we'll, in Scotland we'll, we'll be having a lockdown, a lockdown drink or two, regardless of the result. Let's be honest. <laughs>